We are going through a, uh, I am preaching through our, our proposed new church covenant written by our church's elders or pastors uh, to be approved by many of you, the members of the church, at our next members meeting. Uh, and, and as we've preached through it, uh, we've looked at a couple things. In week one, we looked at the basis for our covenanting together. That is, having the same anchor, the same aim, the same attitude, the same authority. In week two, we looked at how the church is really a family and how, therefore, because we're a family, how, how do we treat each other in light of that we're an eternal family together. In week three, we looked at how, how do covenant members of the church participate in the communal life of the church and what all does that look like? Well, worshiping and small groups and uh, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and, and even when necessary, church discipline. We've said that if our doctrinal statement for our church tells us the things that we must believe to be members of our church, then a church covenant shows us how we ought to live before God and each other to be members of this church. We want to have a strong, clear covenant because we want to discourage membership that is consumeristic and encourage membership that is covenantal. So we want membership to be less like our relationship with uh, Kroger, with no S, (laughs) and we want it to be more like a family. You know, we use uh, covenantal language not really much anymore, but we do use it in one area in our life. We use it when we talk about marriage, and we fight. We fight for marriages, you know, or you should. You know, if your marriage starts getting rough, we fight for it. And in the same way, we don't want uh, a church to to feel like, well, you know, when they don't play the songs I like, I'm out of here. But rather we fight for our church. Uh, So today we come to paragraph four of this proposed covenant, and you will notice in it some words that we say together every week. In fact, we just said them a few minutes ago. Words that remind us of a core value of being radical in generosity. It is important for us to speak to our giving, to our generosity in our covenant because consumers want the best deal. They want the best bang for their buck. They want the uh, the most product for the cheapest price. But covenant members are not looking to do the bare minimum uh, to skirt by. We are looking to be radical. We want members to be radical, to be lavish in our giving and our generosity. Because we trust God and we believe in the mission of God and in this church and we are putting our lives into that thing. Last year, our church celebrated its 50th anniversary, and we had this big celebration service. We had people from the past, old pastors and different people come and speak. We looked at old pictures, and uh, uh, we had a blast. We had food trucks. We had a really great time. And, but one of the things that really jumped out to me as people were sharing stories about the past, one thing that really blew me away and caught me off guard and really kind of moved me was that when this church decided to build its first building right across the street over here, um, obviously it was going to take a lot of money. And there were, I don't know how many, but there were a handful of men in the church who got second jobs in order to fund, or at least get started, the funding of building that church. Because they were renting space before and they wanted to build their first church building, and men got second jobs in order to do that. 
And that moved me because that's not just talk. That's not just ethereal uh, talk. That is taking the mission of Jesus very seriously through a radical act of generosity, radically giving of their time and of that money that they would make to advance the mission of God in Fellowship Baptist Church. Fellowship wouldn't be where it is today if it wasn't for those early days and the generosity of those people who came, from, came before us. We stand on their shoulders. But now those men are gone. Now those people that came before us are, now not all of them are gone. Chuck's still here. Diane's still here. Ron's still here. There are some people that were around in those days that are still here. But many of them are gone. And they are passing the baton to us. They are giving the reins over to us. And the question remains to be answered, will we be found faithful with the mission God has given Fellowship Baptist Church in the year 2023 and forward? Or will we drop the baton? And wait for God to send someone else to pick it up. Paragraph 4 of our covenant reads as follows. Committed to being radical in generosity, we will contribute. Oh, yeah, I want that to be on the screen. It wasn't in my notes? Oh, well, that's my bad. All right, well, it's in your worship guide. Committed to being radical in generosity, we will contribute cheerfully and generously to the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the advancement of the gospel, both to our neighbors and the nations. We will be faithful stewards of our relationships, time, possessions, and money. You know, a lot of pastors hate preaching on money. They are afraid that people are going to leave the church when we talk about money. Uh, And that's a real fear because people have left this church uh, when people have talked about money. But here's the problem. If you uh, always felt kind of, you were feeling tired and sick all the time, and you went to the doctor and you said, hey, doc, man, I am just tired and just always sick, and I can't do anything because I'm always sick. I need some help. And the doctor came to you and said, okay, well, let's figure that out. He said, tell, me, tell me about how, you, how you're sleeping. You sleep in a full night? You, you, you sleep in a little bit? Not a lot? You, uh, you know, how, how's your sleep schedule? You know, what about your diet? Tell me about your diet. What are you eating? You know, you got that pyramid, you know, what, what, what all are you eating? What, you just eat ice cream all the time. What are you eating? Uh, tell me about your stress. Are you, are you really stressed at work? Are you stressed at home? You know, how are you feeling? You know, what's going on with your stress level? And imagine the doctor asked you all those questions and then you said, hey, doc, look, man, I'm here for you to fix my body and what's going on with me feeling tired and sick. I don't need you all up in my personal business, all right? Get out of my pantry, all right? Get, get out of my bed. Get out of, you know, don't be worried about my sleep habits, The doctor would look at you and he would say, hey man, what you may not realize is it's all connected. The way you sleep and the way you eat and the way you stress and all these things are connected to how you're feeling. And if you want me to fix how you're feeling, we're going to have to talk about these things. Because you can't have one without the other. They're all connected. Contributing to your health or lack of health. In the same way, if you want to actually follow Jesus the way he commands us to, if you want to grow in maturity as a disciple of Jesus, if you want your life to be changed and you want to give him your all, but then you look at him and say, God, I am all in, but don't talk to me about my money. I am all in, but stay out of my pocketbook. I am all in, but stay out of my wallet. Just talk to me about my soul. Leave everything else alone. God's going to say, doesn't work that way because it's all connected. It's all connected. You see, sometimes people will say, you know, 
I've been meaning to start giving. I've been meaning to be generous. I've been meaning to take that area of my life more seriously. I want to give. I just can't afford it right now. But look, I can't afford it right now, but, 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 but Jesus is first in my heart. Okay, he's first in my heart. He's the most important thing in the world to me. And, and so, you know, sometimes that's kind of our attitude. But, but I want to say this to you, and this kind of has a little bit of an edge to it, all right? But, but I think we, we need to hear it. If Jesus is not first in your finances, he is not first in your heart. If Jesus is not first in your finances, he is not first in your heart, no matter what we say. You know, Jesus talked a lot about money. Uh, if you read the Gospel of Luke, it is, a lot of it's about eating and money. Because money exposes us. Where we spend exposes what we truly value. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, our wallet is but a window into our soul. Where we spend is but a window into what is first in our life. We spend our time and our money on the things we believe will make us happy. That we believe are truly valuable. And if we always intend to honor God with our money, if that's what we intend to do and what we want to do, but we actually never get around to doing it, it's because we valued something else more. That something else was actually number one in our heart that week. Do you remember when Jesus exposed this in the rich young ruler? Right, this guy comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I want to follow you. I've, I've kept all of the commands. I want to follow you. What else do I need to do? And Jesus looks at him and he, and he exposes him. He exposes in his heart that what he cared about most was his money by asking one question, by telling him to do one thing. He said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me and you will be rich in heaven. And what does the rich young ruler do? He walks away sad. Because what was number one in his heart was not Jesus, but his things. Here is the first principle. I, uh, I, I want us to see five things, five principles that I think will help us understand giving healthily and wisely and rightly and biblically. Number one, our first fruits go to the first in our hearts. Our first fruits go to the first in our hearts. We spend our money on that which we think will make us most happy. Particularly, we spend our first money, we spend quickest, if you will, on the thing that is first in our hearts. But there is a command all over the Bible uh, that we are to bring our first fruits to the Lord. The first fruits of our labor to God. I'll uh, just give you one example of many texts that say this. Proverbs 3, 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. God commanded his people again and again to bring the first and the best of their labor, whether that was livestock or fruit or whatever their trade was, uh, to God. And so if you have 100 sheep, before you sell any of them, before you do anything with them, you pick the best 10. Not the one with the janky leg, right? Not the, not the one with the bad genes. Not the one that's missing half his teeth. Uh, you pick the best 10. You took the best ones. And you gave them to the Lord in sacrifice. That is the idea of first fruits. God gets the first portion. But why is that? Why is it that God gets the first, first uh, portion of our labor, our things? Well, there are a few things, you may not know this, there are a few things that God cannot do. God cannot lie. He cannot lie. The Bible tells us in the book of James that God cannot lie. 
We must always show the truth. God cannot change. He cannot change. He is who he is. If he could change, he would either change for the better or the worse. And if he was for the better, then he wasn't, his all, he wasn't perfect already. And if he could change for the worse, that would be really bad for us. He cannot change. God cannot learn. He already is all-knowing. He cannot learn. But the other thing that God cannot be, he cannot lie, he cannot learn, he cannot change, but he also cannot be second. He cannot come in second place to anything. He is first in the universe, in order, in all things. He is first. Now, sometimes we treat him like he's second or third or fourth or something else, but that doesn't mean he changes. It's just we're treating him out of alignment. He is first. He cannot be second. And it is our job to treat him in accordance with who he is by giving him what he is due, the first fruits of our labor, the first and the best that we have to give. We are giving our first fruits. The only question is to whom are they going? Are they going to God or are they going to some lesser false God of our hearts? So we, the, the principle is we give our first fruits to God, but how do we do this practically? Well, when you go and you make your budget, and if your family doesn't have a budget, you should make a budget. That's just wise. But when you go to your budget, you put you know, your income at the top. Here's how much money we make every month. And the first line, the first deduction from your budget should be your offering to the Lord. It's not your water bill. It's not your mortgage. It's not your savings. It's not your savings for Disney World. It's not any of those things. Your first line, your first fruits, the first money we plan to take out is what we are giving to God. It is our first fruits. You don't have to be legalistic about it. Like if you get paid on Friday and, you know, church isn't until Sunday when you're going to give and you go buy donuts on Saturday morning, you're not not giving your first fruits, okay? You can go buy the donuts. But you get paid on Friday and your first intention in your budget and in your heart and your plan and in your mind is to give X amount to God. And I'll just say here's the way my, me and my family do this. We automate it because we automate what's important in our life. Our bills being paid are important, so we automate those. Um, one of the things that I do in my life is my Fridays, particularly my lunch on Friday, I protect. In my calendar, it is, it is automatically blocked off every single Friday because my family going to Chick-fil-A, bless God, can I get an amen? We're going to Chick-fil-A as a family. So you ask me to do something on Friday, unless it's crazy emergency, uh, the answer is no, because I've automated that Friday is time for me and my family. We automate what's important. And so our giving is automated. And so that way my giving is not based on how I feel that Sunday or how good the sermon is. Please don't base on how good the sermon is that Sunday. Uh, or, or how good the worship was or how I'm feeling or how much I have left. It's not based on how much I have left. I'm not giving my leftovers to God. It's automated to be the first that comes out to give to God. We give him our first and our best. But then the next question becomes, well, how much do we give him? Right? How much do we give him? Well, Malachi 3, uh, verse 8, and 8 through 12 says this. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. 
if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer, that's like a locust, for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. We have a clear command here, really a reminder of a command here, because Israel was failing to do this. The whole nation failing to do this. And it's, God says he is, they are robbing from him by not bringing their tithe. Well, we bring our first fruits, but how much? We have a clear command in Scripture. It is a tithe. It is a tenth. Now, I say, uh, when people ask me this, oftentimes I'll say at least a tenth. We bring at least a tenth. Tenth should be the starting point. Because in the New Testament, tithe isn't really talked about a whole lot. But Jesus does condemn the Pharisees, the religious leaders one time, when they, he says, you bring your tithes. But you don't care for the poor. You, you're good in bringing your, he condemns them from bringing their tithes. But if they don't feel it enough, and there's all these other needs that they can meet, and they're not meeting them. They have the means to do so, and they don't do it. And he condemns them for only tithing. And so tithing is really our starting place, not our ending place. In Acts 2, we see that the Christians are selling all of their possessions and everything they have, and they're giving it all to the apostles to distribute as everyone has need. Tithing is our starting place. You want to say, okay, God, how much should I give you? Well, a tenth. That's a good starting place. Start there. And if we're having a hard time actually doing it, well, what does that tell you? God has called us to bring our first fruits, to tithe all of our labor to him. And if God is asking you right now to do that and you're hesitant, what does that tell you? It's telling us that there's something else that's number one in our hearts. There's something else we would rather spend that money on. There's something else that matters more to us than the Lord in that moment. God knows our hearts and he knows our hesitation. So what does he tell the Israelites here in Malachi? He says, test me. Test me and see that I will not provide for you. Some of you are thinking, I'll start tithing when I can afford it. But God is saying here, test me. Bring me your tithe and I will make sure you always have what you need. Test me. The funny thing is, God provided us with everything we already have. He provided you with your entire paycheck. You better believe that he can provide you more. In many ways, God is trying to teach us to trust him by commanding us to tithe. It's not that God needs it. It's all his already. It really, it's like God saying, do you believe that I gave you everything you already have? Do you believe that I've already provided for you? Then express your trust. Prove and show your trust in tithing and test that I will test me and show. Let me show you that I will prove that I will continue to provide for you. So here's my challenge for you in this first thing. If you're not a current tither, tithe for one month. Tithe for one month. Test the Lord and see if he doesn't provide you for, for you in all sorts of ways you don't expect. For some of you, you will tithe and I, weirdly, you like just won't miss that money. You'll be like, man, like, I was like, that was, the like, budget was really tight and we really didn't have the room for that. But yet we're doing it and it's like somehow like that's not an issue. Like most of you will, will find that to be the case. You'll be shocked you don't miss it. For others, you will find that on the week that you need to get an oil change because you're, you know, like 10,000 miles past your oil change and your car's about to die and you've got to get one, but you can't afford it, you will find out of nowhere someone comes and says, hey, man, I got this, like, coupon for a free oil change, but I don't really need it. You want it? Like, stuff like that will just start happening. 
Like, and God will just provide through all these different ways. Somebody's going to be like, man, I need to go buy diapers for my two-year-old or for my, for my you know, size two diapers for my baby. And I'm just, I can't afford them right now. And all of a sudden, some other mom will come out and go, hey, you know what? We, we've outgrown these diapers. We can't use them. Could you have, do you need them? You'd be like, what? Like, that happens all the time. The Lord will provide. Test him and see. Now, there are two things really going on here. Uh, one, our money is exposing what's first in our hearts. And two, God is teaching us to walk by faith and not by sight. To not put our trust in a piece of paper, in a dollar, that at any moment could burn up or just at any moment could become use, could become worthless. And rather, to trust the one that owns the universe. We show that trust, and we show who's first in our hearts by putting our money where our heart is, by putting our money where our mouth is, and giving our first fruits and our tithe to the Lord. The second principle I want us to see is that we are stewards of everything under our control. We are stewards of everything under our control. This idea of being stewards, of stewardship, I think is a little foreign to us in the 21st century uh, because we don't really have stewards in life like they did back then. It's not prevalent today like it was in Jesus' time. But a steward was someone who managed the property of some master who had a lot of property and assets, right? And so the steward was over the assets, over the business. Uh, they weren't just an employee. Their job was to take what the owner had and to make best use of it, right, and produce more. We see this when Jesus tells the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, in this parable, uh, Jesus says that this master goes and he uh, takes these three people and he gives the first one five talents. Now, a talent isn't like I'm really good at baseball. A talent is a sum of money, a fairly large sum of money. Uh, and so the first guy, he goes and he gives him five talents. The second guy, he gives him three talents. And the last guy, he gives him one talent. He says, I'm going to go away for a while. I want you guys to go and steward my, my wealth, and I'll come back at later and, and check in on you. And so he, he, the master leaves, and the first guy goes and he invests the five talents, and he doubles his money. Uh, and, and he's going to go. The second guy goes and he invests the three talents and he doubles his money. The third guy goes and he buries the talent in the ground and he waits for the master to come home. And when the master comes back, he comes to check in. How have you guys fared with the things that I've given you? And the, and the first two guys say, hey, we did pretty well. We doubled what you gave us. Here you go. And the master's happy with him. He's pleased with him. He says, great job. You, I trusted you with little. Now here's some more. Go do it again. Here's more. I tr trust you more. And the last guy comes to him and he says, hey, uh, you know, I knew you were a really good businessman. I didn't want to lose this. So I buried it in the ground. Here you go. I didn't lose any. I didn't gain any. Here you go. And the master is so disappointed that he takes even the one talent away. And he gives him nothing. He says, I can't trust you. Get out of here. He fires him. It would be like today if you go to a financial advisor and you say, hey, man, I want you to take charge of my money. Uh, and, and, and you invest it. You know, I don't know anything about the stock market. I don't even think about investing. Will you, will you take this extra that I have and invest it for me? And you give it to him and you come back in a couple uh, years to check in and say, hey, man, how, how are things going? Hey, things are going great. Oh, yeah, well, how much, where are we at? Well, we're exactly where we left off. I have the same amount of money you gave me when you left two years ago. I didn't lose any of it. Well, was, uh, that's great you didn't lose anything, but I want you to make, this is my retirement, I want you to make some more. What are you doing? I entrusted this to you, and you didn't do anything with it. Here's the biblical principle. Everything in your life that you have control over, money, property, relationships, 
time, even your kids, are all gifts from God entrusted to you to be stewarded on God's behalf. God owns everything. He's given some of it to you, entrusted it to you to steward it well. And he's left. said, I'm going to come back and check in on how you're doing. Some of you hear that and you say, no, Brent, I earned this money. I get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. I work all day long, and it's mine. I worked hard for it, which is certainly true. But who enabled you to have that job? Who made sure you were healthy enough to be able to work? Who gave you the abilities and the gifting to do the job that you do? Who ensured that you were born in America in a time of prosperity with the opportunities to get that job and not in a remote jungle somewhere where no matter how hard you worked, you wouldn't make anything? Who made sure that you stumbled into the right opportunities, met the right people, and on and on? God did. So, yeah, you worked. But even that job and your ability to be healthy and to work hard and to do it is a gift from God. So everything you have is God's gift to you. So my question is, how does this perspective that everything is God, he's given it to us, he's entrusted to us to steward it, how does that change the perspective and view of how we treat our stuff? Well, first, it should change that, change that we are stewards. So here's, like a, I think, a good definition of stewardship. Christians cultivate, and I love that word cultivate, Christians cultivate the resources in their care for the glory of God and the good of others. And I stole this right from Tim Keller, so you know it's good. Christians cultivate the resources in their care for the glory of God and the good of others. That's what it means to be a steward. That you see the things in your care, not as yours, but as God's entrusted to you. And they are to be used and leveraged for the glory of God, for the mission of God, and for the good of others. So how am I leveraging my home, for example, the place I live, not just, as a, not just as a place I sleep and live, but how do I leverage my home as a place of ministry, of, of inviting my neighbors into my home and opening it up for Bible study and sheltering those in need. I'll give you a great example of a, of a, of a family in our church, uh, the Sprules, who I don't think are here, but uh, the Sprules uh, years ago bought this old country farmhouse, and when they bought it, they said, you know what, uh, the Lord has given us this great house, and we want to use it for the Lord and for ministry. And, you know, maybe that's missionaries, when they come on, on furlough, they can stay here, or, or we'll open it up, have neighbors and whatever, but we want to use it for that. Well, four years ago, uh, our, you know, I, I had been here just a little bit, and we, we knew that we needed to hire a youth minister. And we didn't have a lot of money to do that. And so we found a guy, knew a guy, uh, and said, hey, man, I got some pennies I can throw at you, but I think I might have a place for you to stay. And so I went to the Sprouls and I said, hey, we got a guy, we can't pay him very much, and he's definitely not going to be able to afford a place to live. Would you let him live with you? And without hesitation, they said yes. And he moved in, Ryan right here, moved in, lived with them, and not only did he sleep there, but they fed him good. And so then someone else had to come and, and say, hey, I know you're not making a lot of money. Let's go to Kohl's together and uh, get out of the skinny jeans. Sorry. <laughs> because that southern cooking of bread is pretty good. But they leveraged their home for the mission of God by saying, hey, we've got this spare room. We've got the ability. Come live here. They steward the, recess, the resources of their home, leveraging it for the mission of God. But not just your home. How are you raising your kids? Those are God's kids. Entrusted to you. To be discipled and trained up to become fully, follow, fully mature followers of Jesus to live on mission and serve him. How are you doing that? 
How are you entrusting your time with them, the 18 years you have with them to make sure that happens? What about your money? What about your car? What about your time? When you go to work, you know you're being paid for your time. When you go to work, you know you're being paid for time. you got things you got to get done, and you are evaluated based on how you used that time, how effective and how efficient you were at using your time to accomplish the task that you've been given. But don't you know that every minute of your life is a gift from God? How are you spending the time every minute that God has given you? Are you stewarding your time well, or are you la- wasting it? Are you wasting the minutes of, God, of your life that God has granted to you? Or are you leveraging them for the glory of God and the good of others? How does knowing that everything in your life has been entrusted to you by God to be cultivated for God's glory, to change the way you think about your stuff, how does it change the way you live with your stuff? Well, it changes everything. All of a sudden, wasting time on things that have no eternal value become pretty trivial, pointless things. And so we spend more time investing in our kids, investing in ministry, investing on training up the next generation, using your time to invest in in, in, in your kids here at our church, to to serve the church in in all kinds of different ways, to invite people into your home, to to disciple them, to care for them, to make meals for people who come out of the hospital, to to serve people who just had babies, to have Bible study with a friend on your lunch break. You find ways to use your time to leverage it for the kingdom. You know, so many families in our church, for example, have decided, you know what, we, we're, we have um, uh, an extra bedroom, uh, we have plenty of money, and maybe the most important, we've got energy. And so we are going to bring another child into our home through foster care or adoption. And we are going to steward these things that God has given us, an extra bedroom, plenty of resources, and energy, uh, to become foster parents or adoptive parents. And so many families in our church have done that, have leveraged those things to bring families in need, kids in need, into their home to love them, serve them, give them a safe place, protect them, teach them about Jesus. And that is stewarding what God has given you for the glory of God and for the good of others. I mean, and, and completing what James tells us, that true religion is this, to love, to serve widows and orphans in their distress. We are stewards and we should see our whole life's purpose as to cultivate and leverage the things God has entrusted us to make much of Jesus and care for his people. That's the first thing that should change. The second thing that should change is how quickly, so when we see that everything that we have is God's, the first thing that changes is we steward it all. The second thing that changes when we see that everything that we have is God's gift entrusted to us is that we are easily able to give it away. We are quickly and readily available to give it away because we know it's not ours. I'll illustrate this. Will someone in this room right now come give me $100 that I'm not going to give you back? Get a $100 bill. Give it to me right now. I'm not going to just give it to me. Who, anybody in this room going to give it to me? That's a Benjamin. Ben Franklin. Now, here is a student who works at Kings Island who gets paid a lot more than probably kids should get paid. Am I right? But... Works at King's Island part-time and just easily and quickly came and gave me $100. How and why was he able to do that? Because before the service, I gave him $100 and I said, hey, when, during, the, during the service, <laughs> when I asked for $100, come give it to me. He, and I'm going to put it back in my pocket because I'm not. He was able to give it to me because he knew it wasn't his. He knew it wasn't his. It didn't belong to him. And so it, no skin off his back. It was easy. 
And the same should be true for our given when we realize all that we have is not yours. It's God's. The problem happens when we treat it like it's ours. And what do we do? We like Schmeagol in the Lord of the Rings. It's mine. It's my precious. If you haven't watched Lord of the Rings, I'll pray for you. Everything we own, none of it belongs to you. It all belongs to God. And so when God asks for some of it back, it shouldn't be hard to do. Yeah, man, it's yours anyway. Here you go. You see, some people say, what's mine is mine. That's selfishness. Other people say, what's yours is mine. That's stealing. What we should say is what's mine is God's. That's stewardship. What's mine is God's. You remember that passage from Malachi we read a bit ago. Verse 10 said, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Notice that he doesn't say give the tithe. Because we aren't giving to God anything. We can't give God anything because it's already his. We can only bring it. We can't give it to him. We can only bring it. And our bringing should be cheerful. As we're going to read in a minute from 2 Corinthians 9, it should be cheerful. Not out of duty, not out of compulsion, not because we feel guilty, not because we have to. We should be glad to give it because everything we have is a gift from God. It's like, hey, God, here you go. I trust you. Here's some more. And our giving is a worship and it is trust in God. Here is the second outworking of this truth. Generosity should come quickly and cheerfully. When you know everything that you own is God's, generosity should come quickly and cheerfully. When you know all your stuff is God's, you tithe quickly. And when an opportunity presents itself to bless someone else, to help someone else, you go and you give beyond your normal tithe to be generous on every occasion. Because that is what honors and glorifies God. We don't hesitate. We give quickly and cheerfully because God has given to us. Because all we have is a gift from God. And we trust the giver to continue supplying what we need so that we can continue being generous. The number one uh, principle here, the first is, we give our first fruits to God because God is first. The second is that we are stewards of everything under our control. So we cultivate everything for the glory of God and for the good of others, expressing that generosity quickly and cheerfully. The third principle is that those who are faithful to sow will reap and be entrusted with more. Those who are faithful to sow will reap and be entrusted with more. Now, sowing, I'm not talking about with a machine and a needle and thread. That's what I'm talking about. Well, you'll see. We're about to get a farming lesson. 2 Corinthians 9, uh, 6 to 11 says, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness." You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This principle is so simple, but it is amazing that most of the time we do not live in light of this basic truth. The principle is that whatever you sow, you will reap, or whatever you plant, you will harvest. 
Jesus taught this principle. Do you remember when Jesus said in the book of Luke, give and it will be given to you. Now you read that and you ask, you might say, well, what will be given to me? Whatever you give. Give and it will be given to you. You reap what you sow. Y'all aren't farmers, so let me make sure you got this. If you sow corn, what will you reap? Yeah, y'all, y'all. If you sow wheat, what will you reap? If you sow nothing, what will you reap? Now, you think this is simple, but you'll be amazed how often we expect to reap what we haven't sown. Some of y'all want deep, rich, life-giving marriages, but you've not sown into that marriage or into your spouse. And you're waiting around for a harvest to have a marriage that looks like someone else's you love, and it's not coming because you've not sown into it. Some of y'all want great relationships with your kids, but you never get on the floor and play with them and talk with them, and you haven't sown, and so you're not going to reap that relationship. Some of y'all want to lose weight, and you want to get in shape, but you haven't sown by changing your diet and going to the gym, and so... You haven't reaped it yet. Some of y'all want people to be kind and uplifting to you, but you have not sown kindness yourself into those relationships, and so you've not reaped it. You see, we are like a farmer looking down at his field, staring down in the dirt. And you see that farmer, and you come up to him and go, hey, man, what you doing? He says, man, I'm just waiting on the harvest. Just waiting on the harvest. Oh, cool. What, what did you plant? Nothing. I ain't got no seeds to plant. I'm waiting for the harvest to get a seed to plant it. That's crazy. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. you got to sow. you got to plant before you get a harvest, before you get something in return. Paul is taking this principle, and he applies it, uh, that applies to every area of our life, and he is specifically applying it to our money. You see, sometimes we say, God, if you'll give me that promotion, if you'll give me that raise, if you'll give me just a little bit more, then I'll have enough to start giving to you. But that's not how it works. That's the harvest before we plant. It is the one who is faithful with little that God is going to entrust with much. This is the parable of the talents again, right, Like we just talked about. When those guys proved that they were faithful in a little, God gave them more. He entrusted them with more. But for the one that was unfaithful in little, even that was taken away. It never works that when we say, oh, God, give me more and I'll start giving, it never works that way. Because you get more and you still don't give. Because it's never enough because your money's become an idol. And it's never enough. It's never enough security. It's never enough wealth. It's never enough things. So you don't give. And that's really backward. We don't harvest and then plant. We plant and then harvest. Plus, God has already given us the seeds to plant. Your money is his. We've already said that. And he has told you to plant it, to leverage it, to use it, to give it. Don't go throw it away and then tell God you need more seeds. You ran out. He's already given them to you. You are to take what God has given to you and sow it. And notice what happens in verse 10. He who supplies the seed, right, God gives us the seed. He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God supplies the seed, but once you plant it, he says he's going to multiply and increase it. If, if, here's, here's the principle. If you were to talk to a farmer and he took one kernel of corn and he looked at you and he said, how many kernels is this? You'd look at him and go, I think this guy's a little senile. One. He'd say, no, it's over a thousand. And you'd go, what? It's one. He'd say, no, because I'll plant this one kernel of corn into the ground and up from that kernel will come a stalk with multiple ears of corn on it. And for every ear of corn is about 400 kernels. It will be thousands of kernels. 
this one seed turns into thousands of seeds. You see, when you prove faithful in small things, God trusts you with more. He gives you more. But why does he give you more? This is the important part. This is where the prosperity gospel preachers get it wrong and where we've got to be biblical and faithful and get it right. Why is it that God, when we're faithful and giving a little, he gives us more? The prosperity gospel people say, you sow a thousand, God's, or sow a hundred, God's going to give you a thousand. You sow a thousand, God's going to give you ten thousand. And it's a get rich quick scheme. But that's not what Paul's saying here. In 2 Corinthians 9 11, he says, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And the phrase in, in other translations, they render it a little differently, and I think maybe it's a little more clear. It says, On every occasion. It says, You will be enriched in every occasion to be generous on every occasion. You will be enriched so that you can be generous again and again and again. God gives more to those who are generous on every occasion so that on every possible future occasion, they will continue to be more and more generous. God gives more to those who prove themselves to be generous and little, and so he knows that when he gives them more, they'll keep doing it. This is not a get-rich-quick scheme. This is God administering his blessing. This is God giving his blessing to the church and to other people through proven, trustworthy people. He trusts you to give his blessings to other people, and you're the agent he gives them through. There is nothing wrong with having blessings, but there is something wrong with keeping them for yourself. The division in the Bible is not between the rich and the poor. It's between the generous and the greedy. Here's the principle. God gives more to those who know what the more is for. God gives more to those who know what the more is for. That the more is not for them to go get a nicer car, a bigger house, or live more lavishly. The more is to bless others, to invest in mission, to invest in ministry, to invest in the church, to invest in the kingdom of God. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Well, what does he mean that he's going to increase the harvest of your righteousness? Righteousness here does not mean some personal righteousness before God. Our righteousness comes from Christ. I talked about that earlier. Our righteousness comes from Christ. This is not that sort of righteousness. This is more rightness. This is more setting the world right. It will increase kingdom flourishing with the world will be set right again. Here's what Paul is saying. When you sow in generosity, God will increase the harvest impact to his kingdom. When you are as generous as you can possibly be, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's a lot. The widow gives two mites, two pennies, and Jesus says she's more generous than everyone else. And so when you are generous as you can be, God multiplies that harvest for kingdom impact to change the world. Let me show you how this works. William Carey is called the father of modern missions because he wanted to go to India to preach the gospel to the Indians. And his church at the time was against missions. And they said that if God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without us. And so William Carey went, see ya. And he went and he found his friend, Andrew Fuller, who was a prominent theologian at the time. People still read him today. And he said, Andrew, I want to go to India to reach the Indians for the gospel. But I need someone to fund it. I need to get there and I need someone to fund the work while I'm there. And here's the phrase that he said. He said, I will go down into the pit 
if you will hold the rope. I will go into the pit if you hold the rope. And he did. Andrew financed the work that William Carey did to go to India and preach the gospel, leading many people to Christ, and really launched the modern missions movement as we know it today. What does it mean that God will enrich us and multiply our righteousness? Certainly it means uh, partly financial, that so we'll get more money so we can be more generous. Certainly it probably kind of means that. But it also means an eternal reward. You see, only eternal works get eternal rewards. And once we get to heaven and we, we can kind of know everything, right, we can kind of get, get an info dump and know everything, I imagine that Andrew Fuller, who died hundreds of years ago, is in heaven. And I believe when People are coming into heaven as a result of his generosity. He gets to welcome them there. And I, I think that maybe they, they get all the information. They know that it was because of his generosity that William Carey could come and share the gospel with them. And they come and say, thank you. Because of what you did, I got to know Jesus. I got saved because of your generosity. Guys, we need people who will go into the pit. And we need people who will hold the rope. And that applies to foreign missions, and it applies to our kids in our kids' hallway, and it applies to those in our youth room, and it applies to counseling sessions, and it applies to sermon preparation, and it applies to everywhere that ministry is done. Your generosity enables missionaries and pastors and ministers and ministry to happen. Without you holding the rope, Fellowship Baptist Church could not have reached and discipled and poured into all the people that it has in the last 51 years. The building would not have been built. People would not have gathered for the Lord's Day. We've not been able to invest in our kids and our youth and, and all the things we've done without us holding the rope. Here is what I hope you got today. God is first and deserves our first fruits. Everything is a gift from God and we should gladly steward it. We reap what we sow and if we are found faithful with the little God gives us, he will give us more to be even more faithful and more generous with the more that he gives but man, if you get all of that and you miss this last thing, you're going to miss the whole point. And you might give, but you give from the wrong heart. At the end of the day, why should we be radical in generosity? The answer is simple. Because God was infinitely more radical in generosity than we could ever dare hope for. We give because God gave. That's the last thing you've got to get. It's the most important. We give because God gave. Do you know what the Bible calls Jesus? It calls him the first fruits. You see, Jesus was the first fruits of the Father. The Father gives the Son as a first fruits to us, to be sacrificed for us, to, be, to take on the weight and penalty of our sin so that we could be made right with God. Jesus was God's first fruits. Jesus is the very best and the very first that God gives to us for our sake. And once you receive God's first fruits in Jesus, it changes us forever. And once you know Jesus, giving isn't hard anymore. Once we know what God has given to us, giving becomes so much easier. You see, Jesus, knowing him, is the ultimate treasure. Do you remember the parable Jesus told that when you, when you, when you know him, when you get to be part of his kingdom, you discover it's like someone who finds a treasure and he goes sells everything he has to buy a field and buries that treasure in the field? Jesus is the treasure. He's the treasure. He's the ultimate treasure. Because every other treasure in your life, you have to purchase. Jesus is the only treasure that purchased you. And that changes the game. Once, once you know Jesus, and knowing that he's died for us, 
all of a sudden our earthly treasures, the things we spend in this world, the things, uh, they don't matter. And we see eternal things that matter. Because once Jesus is our treasure, we stop grasping at all the paper money that we can get that will one day cease to hold value. One day it will be worth nothing. And so when we know Jesus as our treasure, like all of a sudden these little treasures don't matter anymore. But because we have that which has value, infinity, and for eternity. And then we'll be able to rightly say when we know Jesus and he's our treasure and he's first in our heart, actually, not just with our mouth, but actually, we will finally be able to say what's mine is God's. And we will use our stuff accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning and we talk about a topic that is uncomfortable, it's hard, it's challenging, it's, uh, sometimes people don't want to talk about it, it hits too close to home. But Father, we need to be reminded of this. Like a patient who is sick and doesn't want to talk about uh, their sleep or their diet, God, we, we've got to talk about our pocketbook. Because it's easy to say Jesus first in our heart, but it's maybe a little harder to actually live that out. And God, Father, we want to be a church who lives that out in every area. We want to make Jesus essential in every area of our lives and our finances are a part of that. They reveal who we actually value, what we actually value. And so, Father, would you help us be a church that's radical in generosity because we know the generosity you've given. Father, help this message not to push us away hurt our toes, but help us to respond to this challenge. Not, a, not my challenge, but a challenge from the scriptures. To trust God and walk by faith and to give him the first and the tenth and to be radical in generosity in every occasion that we have. My challenge to you, church, is to be radical in generosity. If you do not currently tithe, my challenge is to do it for a month. Test him as he calls us to. Test him. See that he doesn't provide for you. Let us walk by faith and not by sight, trusting the Lord, investing, holding the rope so that ministry and mission can happen. So that this church will stand for another 50 years as a light to the community, a light in the darkness. We give to show the world what our Father is like because he's worth seeing. And we want everyone to know him. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I invite you to come learn more about him as we sing this song. Come talk to me. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, we don't want your money. Like, keep it. It's yours. But if you know him, it changes everything. It changes how we think about money. If you're here this morning and you need a prayer for anything, I'd love the chance to pray with you as we sing this song. God, give us the courage to trust you. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. All of people said, amen. Let's stand together.